and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Lauren Fleshman is best known for running fast, and we're going to share some of her decorated career with you today, but she's also an entrepreneur. She's a coach. She's a teacher. She facilitates retreats. And she's a heck of a writer. She has an amazing blog, which has gained a lot of traction and popularity over the years. And she's just finished her book and she published her book, which is called Good for a Girl. And that book is really at the core and at the center of today's conversation. In the middle of our conversation today, I actually introduce her bio to her. And I was curious to get her perspective on it. So I'm going to read that to you here. And then you're going to hear me share it with Lauren later in the podcast, which is not something I typically do. So if you're familiar with running, if you're in the running community, you're probably 
familiar with Lauren's work. She's one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. She also is a brand strategy advisor for Wazelle, which is a fitness apparel company for women. She was sponsored by Nike for a bunch of years, which she talks about at length in the book. And she's also the co-founder of Picky Bars, which is a natural food company, which she co-founded with her husband. And in today's conversation, we talk about her relationship with her husband. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Runner's World, and many other places. And she currently lives in Bend, Oregon. She's a mother. She is someone who has multiple identities, like many of us. And yet, a lot of her life has been focused on her identity as a runner. And so she's going to talk about that today. She certainly talks about that in her book. And this is just a wide-ranging conversation that gets into mental health, depression, suicidal thoughts. It's a heavy conversation, but you'll find Lauren to be engaging, open, vulnerable, and someone that I am grateful that I got to learn with. So here is Lauren Fleshman. Lauren, thanks for coming on the podcast. You have broken a new record, which does not have anything to do with running. I have 34 pre-packaged questions for you. <laughs> Great. I, I, It's a record. I usually have maybe <laughs> 10 or 12. I promise we will not get to 34 and uh, maybe we'll get to seven or eight. But just know that at the end of this, I'll probably have more questions for you. Uh, and it's a testament to your book. I think your book made me think, made me wonder, made me qu question, made me become more curious. And I think that's what I'm looking for in a book. So congrats on that. And, Thanks. and I want to start with curiosity because you said something to me earlier. You said, I'm just intellectually curious. Uh, and then as I was reading your book, I noticed that word curiosity come up more and more toward the later stages of the book. Mm -hmm. Then I read somewhere that you're, you, they asked you what your superpower was and you said, it's wondering. So I'm curious about your curiosity. When did you start yeah. cultivating that? When did you start focusing on that? Talk to us about, about curiosity. Well, I think at first as a younger person and as a, like coming from a working class family and wanting to be able to move, move up to more financial comfort or more social comfort or whatever those things were, I was really interested in the way things were so that I could achieve within the existing structures. Like I, I wasn't curious about why things were the way they were necessarily. I just was like, what needs to happen to win? Okay. I want to, how do, how do I go do that? Um, but then as my book goes on, which is in chronological order of my life, then I start to see how the way things are, isn't working for everyone the same way, especially for female bodied people in sport, which is the focus of the book. But I start to see how it's not really working and that the price that you have to pay to make it work for you can be a very high cost. And then I want, I think because I'm an empathetic person and a community driven person, I was not comfortable, even though I was winning in that system, it made me uncomfortable that so many people I cared about were losing and experiencing harm. And I wanted to know if there was a way to change things or to do it differently where that the cost wouldn't be so high. Um, and so that's what it is, really. It's just like more and more in my life now, I don't assume that things are the way they are for any good reason, really. <laughs> I'm like, why are they this way? Let's figure it out. Like, I know a lot about human biology and physiology from studying it for many years, but I'm still like very humble and that I know science changes and that 
brilliant perspectives can come from outside of the science community. So I just, I, yeah, it's like that old saying, the more, the, the, what is it? The smarter you are, the less, you know, something like that. I think that that's kind of happening to me as I get older. A big part of the book was your relationship with your dad and the up and down relationship you had with your dad. I'm actually not as interested in that as I am curious about your mom, who you acknowledge in the acknowledgement section and just say like, you know, I didn't talk about my mom as much. She's a private person. And, uh, you know, my dad had a big role to play some positive and some negative in my relationship with running. Was your mom someone that brought out curiosity? What role did your mom play? You call her your holistic coach at some point uh, in the yeah. book. So I'm curious, did the curiosity come from her? Did it come from somewhere else? And maybe talk about your mom and perhaps where your curiosity was sparked from. Yeah, my mom's definitely always been the more curious person uh, between my parents. And she she instilled a lot of mystery in me about spirituality, about um, love, you know. Um, but the, in the book, she's not present very much because so many of her contributions were invisible, like a lot of the contributions of women in society. And I was struck by that as I was writing the book, that the stories that had the most power involved my dad. He was the one with the loudest voice and the most power. And so I oriented towards that. But my mom's the reason that I came through it all like as healthy and successful as I did really. And she was, she was always just kind of like grounding me in what mattered, um, which was like health and family and things like that. And I would, I rejected a lot of what she said during my early years of trying to achieve, but her wisdom would come back to haunt me when things would fall apart. And, and the older I get, the more I realized that all along she was overlooked. She was quieter her messages weren't as sexy and as captivating, um, but they were the most true. I got chills as you were talking because I'm thinking about my mom and we grew up in very different households. Uh, I grew up, my dad, very loving, nurturing. Um, I grew up in an upper-class family. Um, I did not grow up with addiction in the household, um, but I am thinking about it my dad is the one who everyone focus on, focuses on when it comes to success or admiration or adulation. And I've had my dad on the podcast. My mom is the one who really like was intentional about instilling values in us, um, saying no to us about getting certain things, grounding us. And she stayed at home with us. So she was really around a lot. And you said something about wisdom and I'm wondering like, is there a distinction to be made between wisdom and intelligence? And, you know, is there, are, are there distinctions to be made between, and obviously our, our traditional norms around moms and dads are, are changing every day, but I'm wondering about like what we value and, you know, how can we continue to value maybe wisdom instead of just intelligence? How can we, value whole person success instead of just achievement. There are these distinctions that came up in your book and are coming up for me now. I'm yeah. curious to get your thoughts on success, greatness, how we define it, how we think about it, and to get your perspective on that. Well, yeah, I think that you, you touching on that idea of wisdom is huge. I mean, wisdom is really hard to quantify and it's sort of like the ability to see the big picture. Like for example, like 
science and nutrition recommendations change every couple of years um, in very dramatic ways that are completely in conflict with each other. Like margarine's the best thing. Just kidding. Butter's the best thing. Just kidding. You know, just kidding. It's coconut oil. And like you have the top experts saying these things that are at odds with each other. And so wisdom is going, hey, these are just guidelines and this will continue to change. And what's the what's the message that we need to hang on to through it all um, that will be evergreen? Right. Uh, and and then keeping people from getting too swept up in any of those trends along the way by anchoring them in the fact that, hey, this is going to change again. So there's things from this we can gain, but let's not go all the way in with both feet, both arms and our whole heart into something like that. And I think with my book, the idea of success is one of those things I developed a lot more wisdom around a holistic view of success that doesn't sacrifice the self, that doesn't sacrifice the body and the mind to the same degree as what. Um, maybe a more intelligence mindset might tell you, like, how do you optimize this system? How do you get as many rewards as possible? How do you get as much income as possible? That's not going to be accounting for those other factors that require grounding. I was just talking to a client about it because my son was playing basketball the other day and the ball went off him and he looked at the ref. My son's seven years old. Uh, and look, the ref, he said that went off me. Um, and there's a commercial with that talks about this and talks about sportsmanship. And, you know, it's a high school kid in high school said it was off me and the ref changes it. And the coach says, Hey, good job. But I know a lot of people in sports that loathe and hate that uh, commercial. And as a parent, I'm wondering about the notion in that we do live in, I love this world. I'm fortunate. I, I, I love my life but it is got some wickedness to it and it is competitive and we live in a capitalist society. Um, and where that line is of like win at all costs or compete versus being honest. Um, and even in your book, you subtly reference performance enhancing drugs. And you even talk about your run once where you put your elbows out to try to guard someone from passing you, which is illegal, I think, in running, correct? Yeah, it's against the rules in my sport. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about it when you think about nurturing your kids and, and coaching athletes as far as like, where's the line where that competitive spirit needs to be and when that might conflict with values or morals or ethics or, or whatever it might be? How do, oh, how do you yeah. make sense of that? Well, I think just making sure that I can point out to my kids um, that the predominant values of our nation are individualistic. And there are things about that that can be nice, like focusing on what you bring and what your gifts are and um, and not trying to be like everybody else. Um, I like that. But then the idea of our capitalistic society is very much like don't look at all of the things that are all the people getting hurt, all the exploitation that has to happen for you to get this prize, for you to get that funding, for you to earn those profits. It's like fast fashion is probably one of the ones that's been the most eye-opening to me is you just don't even know. Like you, we aren't taught to look down the chain and see all the lives impacted that allow this shirt to be $19.99 at the store. Um, and so I, I definitely want my kids to have more awareness about that, to just know like there is a cost to success for other people and there are ways to be successful that minimize harm and it's okay to want to succeed, but like, it's not okay to put the blinders on and not look at the harm caused is it's like community care versus like individualism. We have to have community mindset. We're all going down in the ship together in the end. 
like the pandemic highlighted how integrated we are, but it also highlighted that that privilege and money can protect you from a lot of things. So it's tough. I don't know. What are you doing? <laughs> trying. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm trying. Unfortunately, like my kids, you mentioned, I mean, like privilege is a word people struggle with. I don't struggle with it for a, a lot, variety of reasons. Um, so I know my kids are, are in a position to most likely be in a good place. And I don't even mean financial. I mean, I, I do mean financial, but they also have two parents that are pretty on the same page that are pretty aligned. Um, and, and there's a lot of other reasons for that. However, I still think it's my responsibility, my responsibility and my obligation to raising children in our society to just pause, stop, have them be curious, be curious with them. Um, lucky for them, their dad makes mistakes all the time and, and be willing to say like, yeah, I screwed that up. And, um, I made a mistake and we all are imperfect. And when I was reading your book, like, like there's a lot of imperfection that you are opening up in yourself, but also in other people. And, um, whether it's the sports psychologist or some of your coaches that come along the way who might add value in some way to your world and your life, your dad is like the perfect example of imperfection. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I, I think I keep coming back to that. Like, I want to have grace for people when they make mistakes, but obviously we all have things that we can't forgive and there are consequences in this world. And so yeah. teaching my kids when giving them the space to fail, but also holding them accountable and letting them know when it's not okay to talk to someone a certain way and it's not okay. It, that line is tough as a parent and I don't, definitely don't have it mastered, but that's what I'm striving for is to be willing to guide them, to Sherpa them and to ask them questions and to not stifle them. I, we were talking about my daughter before we started recording. My biggest fear is that I stifle her fierceness, her independence, her strength, like these beautiful elements of her that I think will serve her as a woman, um, yeah. but make her harder to parent for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but those are the wonders. I don't, they're more there are more questions and frameworks and thoughts, but uh, parenting is the hardest job I've ever had. So I, Oh, it totally is. <laughs> That's for sure. I like though, that example you gave early on about what your son said with the, um, that the ball came off of him, because I was thinking just about how winning feels so much better when you've won with integrity and when you can feel like you've honored like your employees or your teammates or the other team. Um, it just does. And the, in my book, during the times when I, like during that race where I was throwing my elbows out, like it haunted me. I know that some people can do that and it doesn't matter, but I think that, I don't think that's how we're born. I think we're kind of taught to do that kind of like whatever it takes. We're taught to view each other as like disposable at some point. Um, Cause that's not, that wouldn't be like a thing that would help us survive evolutionarily to be at each other that way. Um, being on the same team is how you survive. And so I don't know, I, but I, I loved the feeling as I got later in my career of like, if I acted with integrity and if I prioritized my love of the game, my love of running, then the wins felt better. And the losses also felt less heartbreaking. Yeah. It was still a bummer, but it wasn't tied to my identity and worth as a human being. I mean, in the same way, so I could roll with it a little bit more. It would take me less less time to get from the heartbreak to the lesson and move on instead of just being caught in like the heartbreak and identity crisis stage of losing. Um, 
Yeah. I want to go to identity because I think a big part of this book is wrestling with identity. And I'm reading this book and I've I've got all this knowledge and I flip over to like the back flap of the book and there is a picture of you and it's not a smile. It's kind of a neutral look. Uh, but then I'm going to just read what the bio says and I'd like for you to just sit with it and I'm going to ask you how it makes you feel. So I want you to like tap into, okay. your, bo- into your body uh, on okay. this. So it's Lauren Fleshman is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. She's the brand strategy advisor for Wazel. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Uh, a fitness apparel company for women and the co-founder of Picky Bars, a natural food company. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Runner's World. She lives in Bend, Oregon with her husband, triathlete, Jesse Thomas, and their two children. Yeah. Well, to me, my body's like, wow, that was a lot. I'm tired (laughs) because I've been really busy and working so hard for so long. Um, But I'm also like, wow, I'm doing a lot. I've done a lot of things that I'm proud of. That's the other thing I feel. You're tired and proud. Yeah. Tired and proud. And I think ready for this stage that I'm in now, which is I wanted to make something useful out of the things I've learned that could be picked up by other people and create shifts inside them that could change, change their environment, their community, their home, or just something in themselves. Um, and I just really never underestimate the power of a subtle shift in a person. I've been shifted by books. I've read stories. I've read in ways that changed my life that like aren't going to make headlines, but they fundamentally change how I parent or how I think about myself. So I wanted to be able to, to do that. And if for other people, um, and if it helps make sports better for female athletes, even better, but it's definitely more than a sports book, right? It's like a, it's a sports story, but we all know sports can be an arena to learn about life and ourselves. So it can be that too for non-athletes. And it has been, I've gotten a lot of notes from people about that, the shifts that it creates inside them from reading it. And how does that make you feel when you get those notes? I love it. It's so it's as a writer, just having all of that work and all of that, like mining of your experiences and um, trying to make it fit, make it make sense. You you write for the reader and you write for yourself. So to know that it's landing in the way that I hoped it landed feels so, so good. I was like alone with the book for three years, really. And um, you just, you lose objectivity and you don't really know if you're, if you are accomplishing what you set out to do at a certain point. Do you think pride requires exhaustion? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I hope not. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I can be proud of like making really good chocolate chip cookies. So I'd say no, but maybe like large scale pride. Yeah, I think you probably have to be tested. You probably need to have had something that like made you unclear if you could get there. It's an interesting word. Cause I think from my seat, your dad was a pretty proud guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was proud in the on the kind of the shadow side of that in some ways. Like too proud to change, too proud to like take accountability or, you know, acknowledge where he was wrong. So there's that side of pride too, right? And then there's I hadn't even really thought about that before. I had a athlete I worked with once. He was a wrestler. And by the way, I, I put these sports, I call them pain sports. So cross country, wrestling, 
American football, tennis, um, rowing, crew. They're sports that require a lot of physical pain, but also mm-hmm. mental and emotional because there's like a spotlight that gets put on those athletes. And if they make a mistake or they screw up, it's hard to hide. Uh, and I had a wrestler once talk about pride with me. And he said, uh, confidence is believing in myself. Cockiness is believing I'm better than others. And pride is believing in something that's bigger than myself. Mm. And for you, you've mentioned community a couple of times already. And that word pride, to me, it's hard to have pride with, you know, by yourself. It's hard to have pride without others. But then there's this other side of pride that comes internally to your point, where if we're too proud to go ask for help or we're too proud to learn or to grow, there's a, there's a shadow, like you said, a dark side. So, yeah, I almost feel like they need to be two different words <laughs> yeah, because we that's even weird have that they're the same word. We have pride in, in uh, the homosexual community that's used. We have, you know, pride that's used for animals that are part of a pride. Yeah. I mean, like it, it proud is a, it's a fascinating word. And to your point, like saying you're too proud to do something. I, it, I've thought about it and tried to make sense of it, but I agree like there, but I think also maybe there d- does need to be the same word because sometimes words <laughs> like selfish, for example, we say as a negative word, but to me, it's like, no, you have to take care of yourself first before you can yeah. even help anybody else. So I don't think selfish is a bad word necessarily. Yeah. Um, I guess that is where the, like the light and the shadow side of things is a helpful way to look at it. Yeah. Do you love coaching? Yeah, I do love coaching. Um, I'm on a coaching sabbatical right now. Uh, the last two years focused on getting the book done and out into the world. And so part of my to-do list this year is thinking about what role coaching will play in my life. I think that um, the things that I love about it, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at it. I, I like that I can take a job that is as big and heartfelt and like where the stakes are emotionally high especially I work with professional athletes who make it their job. So to do that and be able to guide them towards success without sacrificing long-term health or mental health, forgetting who they are, that's something that I know I can do well and that feels rewarding, but I don't like um, that there's no off button. That makes it really challenging. It's kind of like parenting in that way. Like you're always a parent and you um, like my athletes would be swimming in my mind in the evenings while I was eating dinner with my family and like trying to chew on a problem that they've been having in a recurring manner and, and you can't solve it like at work. So it is tough to have boundaries and then also just all the travel involved. Like I love traveling, but I'm at, I'm really enjoying being able to travel for different reasons besides watching track meets. So I'm not sure I'm going to get back into it in that way, maybe like coaching middle school or helping out like with my local high school track team or cross country team, something that like, I can leave it. I can leave it the track. It would be really nice. Coaching, running, writing, entrepreneurship. If you money aside, uh, even let's just take lifestyle aside, right? Like, or sacrificing or, you know, being Mm -hmm. a pro runner, you have to travel a lot or um, just take the, the pure thing is, is one of those things where you feel most alive or one of those things where you feel most connected to yourself and, and really, um, engaged? Well, the thing I feel most connected to myself is when I'm moving my body outside. 
um, alone. Uh, and then next after that would be with friends. Um, that was really a cool part of making a living as a professional athlete, because I did get to do the traveling and make a living and do that thing that feels so good to me. Uh, but outside of that, um, I like to teach these retreats that I do called wilder retreats where it's running, writing, like riding with a pen, not riding a bike and, um, being in a beautiful outdoor naturey space and dedicating several days to returning to the wilder version of yourself that tends to get like squished out of us as we age and parent and caregive adults and have careers and stuff. And like that leading primarily women into a grounding environment to reconnect with themselves in that way is so rewarding. Um, and it has a lasting impact. All right. That makes sense to me, but I want to go back to the first part of your answer, which is you said running by myself, because so much of what you're talking about is community and being around others and uh, a group, but you, you, you could be a solo runner or you could, I know cross country teams are complicated and you hit on that in the book, but there's a solo component that you're drawn to that you just mentioned. Can you just double click on that and give us more context as to what you mean? Yeah, I think um, it's really about returning to yourself. I think there's something primal in it. You move your body, you can pull all like the wires that are sort of tuned to the outside world back into yourself. And I think that that meditative movement helps with that. And then also just like big believer in nature chemicals all the things that we can't see that we can't measure that are given off by trees and fungus and soil and sunshine, sunshine and um, wind. And that's our, those are our origins. Like, you know, and like there's is some serious medicine to that. And um, when I bring friends in, I can still have that, but you have like the X factor of what will the, will the conversation feel additive to that or the community or will it distract from your ability to, to have that grounding um, and that's a little bit hit or miss, but with the right training partner, it works just as well as by myself. You mentioned over the last two years, you've been focused on the book and taking the sabbatical. You also uh, had about a depression during this time as well. Um, were you able to get that running the nature during the last two years? Um, did that contribute, maybe not getting that contribute to how you've felt about yourself as you've, because writing is a solitary act, even if you have support Mm -hmm. coaches, editors, et cetera, at the end of the day, you have to sit down and it's you and a computer. Uh, Yeah. It's pretty brutal. Like I wrote a book. It took me four years. Like it is a brutal process. I've yet to meet a writer. That's like, Oh yeah, dude, cake. Like it's just easy. (laughs) Um, That's not true. I actually have met writers that are like that, but I'm not one of those. Um, I'm not either. So for you, like, as you look back at those last two years, how do you make sense of um, pouring yourself into this, the toll it's taken on you um, and your health? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how do you wrap that all up and, and reflect on it? Um, well, it was all complicated by the pandemic. I, I like sold the book in February of 2020 and by March, no one was doing in-person meetings in New York anymore for books. So Uh, And then I went from this grand plan of writing my book in uh, my co-working space, which then was shut down to homeschooling two kids and 
having two home offices inside our home with my spouse and I um, in 1000 square feet of space with two bedrooms and one bathroom. And it was just like, there was just no way there was no way all the things were going to get done. And um, so that was my first book writing experience had that other layer to it. And just like the generalized anxiety of what was happening in the world and all of that. Um, I think that those, all those factors combined are the reason I ended up having uh, like a pretty significant depressive episode and movement just stopped happening. I just stopped getting outside to run. Like it started, it felt like, I know that made it worse in retrospect, but that's one of the tricky things about depression is you lose joy for the things that used to bring you joy, like simple things. And so running didn't feel joyful during that time. So it was like more work. It was just another thing I had to like make myself do. And with the looming deadlines and all the other things going on, it just kind of like didn't get done. And then I would go and then it would make my mental health worse. Uh, I was definitely a place I'd like to not go back to. I would be curious what it would be like to write a book under more normal circumstances. I'm positive it would still be extremely hard, but maybe not that hard. (laughs) Had you experienced anything like that in, in your life? No, I'm, I'm like, I have more highs and lows than my average friends. Um, but kind of more like, like my artistic tortured souls type type stuff, but I had never gone into a place that I felt like I questioned life at all. Um, or like, I remember that thinking like my kids would be better off without me. And then when I had that thought, I was like, Oh God, I need to ask for help. Like this isn't going to resolve itself. Um, so that was scary for sure. I'm still on prescription drugs to keep me on the good side. I don't know if that'll be forever. I have no idea, but I was very humbled by that and like frightened by that, knowing that that is one of the things that can happen to me and how hard it is to get back from that. If we were to go back five years, I'm just picking an arbitrary number. Yeah. Um, and you have the knowledge you have now, what would you say to yourself five years ago about depression, uh, suicidal tendencies, uh, and I'm thinking about this for the audience and for myself, just to become more educated. Uh, I have not experienced what you've experienced and you're an N of one. And I understand that, but yeah. it's helpful to learn from other people's experiences so that if, and when we know someone who's going through something, not to say we can walk in their shoes, but to have a little more knowledge on it. So mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can go back five years when you hadn't gone through something as dark as what you've gone through, mm-hmm. what knowledge would you pass on to that person? Um, I would definitely tell that person to move your body, like kind of no matter what, and to just lower the bar of what that means when you're having a hard time. If that's just a walk around the block, like that's better than nothing. Um, and yeah, try, try your best to keep that going. That will be, it will create resilience for you. And then, um, just having people to talk to, I guess, like people that you make sure you have people who are available to you that you can be vulnerable with, because you're going to need them when things, if things take a turn, um, you don't, it's hard, it's a hard time to start being vulnerable with someone when you're already feeling super blue. So let people in, um, and then be aware of of um, the stigma against medication. It's just like, it's real. And if you are already kind of, once you're mentally compromised and sort of sliding down the slide into towards depression, there's, sh- there's shame you're gonna have to come up against of like, I can't believe I even need help. Like surely I can fix this myself before I need to go like take medicine. 
but then you just end up delaying the help longer and it just gets harder and harder and harder to ask for it. So I think it's just like, don't be afraid of medication. You don't have to be on it your whole life. It's there for a reason. It's helpful. Like it can, it can be the difference of even just like giving you enough of a boost where you can still get outside and move each day. And then that gives you an even further boost. So it's, it's just, yeah, it's huge. On the other side of the coin, anxiety uh, is something that you referenced throughout the book, especially pre-race. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you would often have these doubts and these questions. And it seemed like you had some people around you that were really helpful in sort of walking you through what could happen, what's the upside, what's the downside. And you want a hell of a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and so I'm curious to get your thoughts on on anxiety before a performance. I'm sure there was a mm-hmm. lot of anxiety with this book. Once it goes to print, scary thing about a book, it's done. You can't edit yeah. it. You're going to disagree yep. with parts of it in a couple of years. If you continue to grow, I know for exactly. me, I already, I already have some issues with my own book, um, <laughs> but uh, anxiety and, and your ability to, to manage it, so to speak, um, and still perform. Can you speak a little bit about um, how you think about that and how you think about anxiety as a, a factor in performance. Yeah, I think I just, I think the main thing is accepting that it's part of trying hard things. Um, The anxiety doesn't need to be to the degree where you, you know, if it's getting in the way of you doing the thing at all, then that's another level. But like, I think sometimes, at least in my experience, I felt so bad about having anxiety. I thought like, oh, a real professional wouldn't have this kind of fear. Uh, because in my earlier running days, I didn't have it. So I kind of like judged people that, that had a lot of fear and anxiety. So that went, once I had that myself, I was now projecting my judgment back onto myself. And then that made the anxiety just grow bigger. It's like, if you try to tell yourself not to think something, don't think about this, don't think about this. Like you just think about it more. It's not an effective strategy. So I think embracing the fact that what anxiety means is that you care. It's just an indicator like, oh, I care about this. Here's this feeling inside letting me know I care. And then now what do I need to do to make sure that anxiety doesn't take the wheel so I can still do the thing I really want to do? And a big part of that was lowering the stakes, which is hard to do on a global stage as a professional athlete. But still, like this is a sport. I do this because I want to. I enjoy competing because it's an opportunity to test myself, like reframing the things like anxiety tells you. Um you need to win this or you're a loser or like you need to win this or you're a bad investment for your employer um, or you're actually just a fraud or you were delusional forever thinking you could win like these kind of really big stakes, lower the stakes. It's a game. Um, And with the book, it was the same thing. It was like, all right, like I can't control everything. The book's going to be out there. I'm going to change in three years. There will be parts I don't like then. That's the price you pay for being a writer. That's just part of the deal and people other, you're not alone in it. Um, and I, yeah, that's, I guess that's the other thing back to running. You're not alone in it. It's normal and you're not alone. Mm. The other part you hit on about not being alone is just the female journey in running. And I've worked with division one runners and I wasn't aware of this in my grad program. I, so I got my master's in sports psychology and I look back and it is amazing. Like there were probably more women in my program than men. Uh, and like, we did not talk about in that program, a lot of the stuff you talk about in your book. And I grew up, you know, 
two brothers. Like I, I wasn't that interested in girls in high school. They weren't that interested in me is probably more of the story. And so I like I felt very limited um, when I would have division one female runners talk to me about their periods and talk to me about uh, like, I didn't even realize this. They would be like, I, I, I PR'd in high school and I can't get back to that number. And I was like, Oh, really? I was ignorant to it, um, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people don't even realize like what goes on for athletes. Whereas, uh, you know, on the men's side, a lot of them just continue to grow, get better, improve, work hard. They get better. They get the rewards and yeah. it's just the cycle. And you brought this up in the book and, um, and this idea of comparing yourself to your, your previous self, uh, is something that, I think especially female athletes that I ran into at the division one level when they're usually 18 to 23, it's a very real thing. And it is a crisis for them because they aren't performing as well as they know that they're capable of in their mind. Um, yeah. Well, especially cause they've done it once before. Like that's, what's so tricky about it. And if you were dealing with a male bodied athlete who was in the same position, you'd probably be like 99% sure it's something between their ears. Like you might be like, Oh, maybe you have a virus or you know, maybe there's some health problem. But once you've ruled that out, like we're talking about between the ear stuff, if people aren't educated on the basic differences of female physiology and female performance improvement, including plateaus and dips when they're going through puberty, you could easily see how a psychologist or a medical professional might have this female athlete looking in all the wrong places for answers when really they're not doing anything wrong. They aren't a head case. They're just going through a natural physiological stage. Um, but without that knowledge, without that being taught in schools, like we could be really leading people down the wrong path or like kind of treading water, trying to solve a problem that's not a problem. Yeah. And to me, there is also the ramifications of looking for those 0.1% which you talk a lot about eating and, you know, one of the runners I worked with after her career, when she had to retire or, or stop running in a collegiate level, like was very open about what she went through and her body uh, and eating. And, um, you know, it's something that once again, I think we are uneducated in um, and, you know, there's an old argument like what's worse deliberate like anger or ignorance um and I, I i just want to take a moment to thank you because i think uh you are creating an opportunity for less and less people to be to claim ignorance um mm -hmm. and hopefully the people that listen to this podcast can think about um women that are in their life and as they continue to evolve and change and and how that those physical changes might impact them in ways that um are important um like yeah i mean, imagine if we were as clueless about boys voices changing in adolescence as we were about girl like female puberty body changes right like if we like saw a boy who liked to sing and his voice started cracking and we were like man you are really just anxious you are obviously like getting it's, it's in your head you just need to think or we were like well, turns out, you know, your voice changed and you're, you don't really have a future in singing. Like we just wouldn't do that, but we're doing that. Like our ignorance is so collectively great on the female athlete experience, female bodied experience that we are, we are making 
um, young people make conclusions about their future in sport or what they're capable of based on a very short window of their life where their body's changing. And, um, and we are making them afraid of those changes, like they're permanent changes that will launch them off the path to success. And, and those are the things, because we're meeting those changes that way, we have huge number of girls restricting their diet, looking in the mirror, hating their bodies, um, looking at these essential human functions like a menstrual cycle as like an inconvenience and a and an impediment. Um, and like, think about how fundamentally that that changes someone's life. If they're waking up every day, meeting the world that way versus like, I'm my body's fine and I'm right on time and things are as they should be. Carry on. Like <laughs> that is the power of knowledge of eliminating this ignorance. It's like very impactful to the daily life of female athletes. When you think about other ways to impact female athletes, you posed a question in your book, which said, what makes great women possible? And I'm curious what, what your answer to that is. What are some things that make great women possible? Um, well, eliminating a lot of the forces that are keeping them down, right? Like there's legitimate societal barriers, um, ignorance about their lived experience being one of them. And I think the static of what you said, what makes great women possible, possible? eliminating the static that they are taught to put in their brains where they're picking themselves apart all the time. And so that they can have the full capacity of their skills, their passion, their drive, that they can apply all of that to the world and not like a dimmed down version, whatever's left after they spend a lot of time picking themselves apart um, and trying to meet some external gaze, someone else's view of when they're enough based on what they look like or whatever it is. Uh, I think that's huge. And then, yeah, I think just like, yeah, we just need to kind of like get out of their way. I, I'm just giving you a couple seconds to get out of your way. Uh, badass. I would imagine a lot of people have called you a badass, whether it's writing the book or your blog posts or running when they call you a badass, how, how do you, how do you receive that? Um, well, I, I guess I like it. I feel like I've had to do a lot of work to clear out that static in my own self to be able to be capable of speaking this way or writing this book. I mean, it's like, there's a lot of work. It's really hard. So it feels, it feels earned, I guess, in a way, but it also doesn't feel, um, I don't feel like it's better. I don't feel like it as a status thing. It's more just like, okay, you can see it. You see what I'm working hard to do. And I appreciate that. And they call you a badass woman. Does that change the context or is it the same thing for you? Um, I think it's the same as long as the person respects women. Well, it's interesting because one of the things your book did was make me think about words that I use. Uh, mm -hmm. You said like, oh, that person has balls or they're a pussy. And even when I sent you um, a reminder that we're recording today and to have good audio, I used to say uh, audio is king for podcasts. And I thought about that as I was sending it to you. And I thought, you know what? Uh, why do I need to use the word king? Like, why don't I just use the word podcast? I forgot I changed it to something else. Uh, yeah. The podcast is essential for, uh, uh, audio is essential for podcasts. And the word badass, I've posed this to some, to some women. From my perspective, 
it's a it's a label that often gets put on women um more so than men mm. and so i notice that women are often described as badasses or that's a badass woman or that's a badass chick or whatever it is yeah and, and as a male like i'm just curious about this stuff and you've made me even more curious thank you for that yeah um, well i'm curious because i didn't know men weren't called badasses <laughs> I'm not saying they're not, but now that you're aware of it, you can send me an email in a month and just let me know. You can start tallying these things. Because to me, I think one of the reasons for it is the assumption that a woman is not going to be a badass. Um, yeah, that's a good point, that you're exceeding expectations. And therefore, what were the original expectations? Mm -hmm. I can yeah. see that. And, and so what do you do with it? I'm going to get out of the way and say to women, you can, <laughs> you can own it. You can disown it. You can take that term and, and make it yours. Uh, like I think any woman that delivers babies having watched two babies come out is a badass. Like that is a fact. <laughs> um, so maybe women are just more of a badass than, than men are. I think there, there could probably be an <laughs> argument to be made there, but it's just something to explore and something as I was reading your book, like I hadn't really thought about when I say to someone, oh, they've got balls and um, mm -hmm. or uh, they're a pussy. Like those are things that I hadn't really thought about how we uh, think about gender in terms of the vocabulary we use. Uh, and I think a lot of us just become mindless, especially if we're in the position where we don't have to think about those things. So, totally. Um, yeah, and, and I see why. I see why people get frustrated where like, oh, PC language, and there's just always something you can say that's wrong. And I think that people are most likely to say that when they, when those words don't impact generalizations about people like them. Um, and like the whole thing in my book in the beginning, where I talk about that description of courage, balls means courage. And that would be fine if, if we also didn't use the term of like a wimp the opposite of courage is a pussy because then you're just clearly like you uh, sorry but like those things you cannot avoid the fact that you're attaching character traits to the genitals of two groups of people and that that will you can't tell me that doesn't have an impact in some way it certainly did on me like as a young girl I didn't really identify as a girl or a boy I was just like this tomboy kind of kid who played hard and I happened to be a girl, which I knew because I had girl parts, but like, it didn't mean anything to me until people started ascribing meaning for me to what that meant. And I was paying attention and it's like, oh, well, what are the words associated with power? Well, these tend to be male oriented. And what are the words associated with like being a wimp? They tend to be female oriented. And like, what does that mean? Like, what, how should I feel about that? Yeah. And one of the more courageous moments of the book uh, was writing a letter to Nike at 3 a.m. in the morning about them leveraging sex appeal for their ads. Uh, and uh, I, I thought about that. I'm like, we're often told that decisions after midnight are usually bad decisions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, nothing good can ever happen at three in the morning. Um, and uh, I've I've seen me in that situation before. But... <laughs> But I'm 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 curious for you. Um, you know, that's a decision that that you did and and then led to some change. Uh mm -hmm. how do you think about that advice? Like, hey, and, and let's just broaden the advice. Don't make decisions just based on your gut. Like think it over, um, give it some space to breathe. Uh, how do you think about that in the course of your career? Um, the times when you just said, Hey, F it, I'm going to go for it versus yeah. you know, giving things some time to breathe. And, and before you make a decision. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely am a believer in giving things a time to breathe, but um, that you really need to weight heavily the your emotional response to something. If you have unaddressed trauma and you have unaddressed things that could be making your internal feelings alarm less reliable and you need to work on those things, but the, and most of us do, but that it's worth it because there is this internal gauge that is helping us. It's like helping us magnetize towards or away from things that are right or wrong for us. Um, or just don't feel right according to our values. And even though that email was sent at three in the morning, like I would, I, I sat on the words for that was three in the morning is just how long it took me to actually send it because like I went on a run and I talked for hours to my husband and I, I like journaled about it and I, I gave it a lot of thought. And I think that there was something about the 3am send that gave me courage. Cause I was just like, done overthinking it. I was like, this is, it's not going to get any better than this. If anything, I'm just going to end up chickening out and backing out. And then I hit send. You mentioned your husband and you mentioned journaling. Uh, you journaled when you were visiting Stanford. I met my future husband today. So I'm assuming <laughs> you're like 17 years old at that point or yep. 18 years old. Uh, and he's on campus. Uh, when I met my future wife, uh, we were at a bar I might've had a couple of drinks and I told the entire bar I was going to marry her. And oh, so that's sweet. maybe we have something in common where, you know, when we know, we know difference being you then waited a lot of years and had this sort of uh, interesting relationship with, with Jesse um, to then actually start being more serious. Whereas me, I, I'm like trying to take her to the cheesesteak place across from the bar for our first date. And, and she's like, ah, I don't want that to be our first date, but I, I acted pretty quickly and, and the rest is mm -hmm. history. Um, for you, first, I wanted to start on like seeing things in the future and having a feel for things and having a vision. Cause that like the picky bars, you know, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to create, you know, I don't think you envision then selling it for $12 million one day. Um, and so there's a part of you that can maybe see some things and have a vision. And then there's another part of you that maybe just acts and just gets moving. Um, yeah. can you talk about just the ability to see things ahead of time and then when you take action and, and when you just start to move and, and how you think about that dynamic? I think for the most part, I'm a very present focused person. Like I tend to lose things all the time and like be late for stuff a lot. Like I am a person that what I'm doing, I'm doing all the way. Um, and I value the pleasure it brings me in that moment. So picky bars was an example of that. I had shit else to do. I was injured. I was curious about it. I had a problem to solve with my husband's diet at the time for his triathlon. So I like started making snacks. I didn't think it would turn into a $12 million business, um, over 10 years later. And that's not why I did it, but I was enjoying myself. And then I continued to like grow it as it, as it went, because it was still rewarding and still fun. But when it comes to that feeling of seeing Jesse on campus, there was, there is that feeling of like, oh, there's a rightness here. And this person's important to me. They're going to be important to me. Um, similar to when you see, you hear a certain song and it speaks to you in some way you don't know why, or piece of art or architecture, um, or like, I don't know. It just, there was something about it that I knew he would be important to me. And he is. And even though our relationship has changed, like we're uncoupling at the moment romantically, but we're, we're family and we're co-parents and we want to live like on the same street. Like they, our relationship will continue to grow in a different direction. Um, and it doesn't make me feel like, oh, I was, turns out I had it wrong. 
<laughs> when I was 17. It's nothing like that. It's like continuing to choose that this person's important to me and just like in which ways feel most true to who we are now. What do you think of the word loyalty? Um, I think it's overrated, to be honest. Yeah, I think like, I think that it can be a cage. It can be a way to hold, to make people hold on to you or um, make people bend to your will, uh, like mafia style. <laughs> but I think that if it's really coming from a genuine place of like, hey, that for me and Jesse, I feel like we're loyal in the sense that we genuinely want to stick around to see what's going to happen in that person's life. Like they're important. And, um, and so I'm, I'm loyal to that relationship remaining important in some way. Um, if he dramatically changed as a person and was like a bad person or bad for me, then I would, I would not continue that relationship just out of loyalty because we said I do once upon a time. You mentioned before that you have a tendency to stay in the present and not go too far into the future. One of my favorite skills that you leveraged, and this is coming back to like the sports psychology side to me, yeah, is soaking in the field and using this as a way to get ready uh, to run. Talk about soaking in the field and, and what that would do for you, mm -hmm. what that would feel like, and how maybe people could leverage something like that in their world. Yeah, I think that people meditate. Um, I still haven't figured out how to meditate. I haven't devoted any time. But I, I, looking back, I've been told that soaking in the field is essentially a version of that. But the way I would think about it is um, at my core, I loved to run. I loved to move my body and I loved to see what I was capable of. Uh, like formal sports and racing was the avenue with which I was now doing that. But with formal sports and racing comes a lot of external pressure and um, coach expectations and I don't know, just a lot of junk. And that stuff would accumulate on my body in the lead up to a race, kind of like a thick layer of dust. And so what I would do with soaking in the field was lay down on my back on the ground. I could feel, and I didn't have to make this happen. This happened automatically. When I closed my eyes and laid on the ground and just like breathed, I would feel myself kind of screwing into the earth, like I started to get a spinning sensation, like when you're drunk, but like not in the bad way and just like start to spin slowly. And then it would feel like the dust that was accumulating on my body was just able to lift off. Like when you spin something, you know, things will like fly off of it. And that's the visual that I would get is the, all that stuff would be lifting off of me. And all that was left was just the core of me and the ground beneath me. And that was how I relocated myself. And then I would kind of go from there right into the competition. It just made it way easier to stay with, with my power. Was there anything you did over the last two years with writing that was similar? Um, I feel, yeah, I did a wild writing practice. So I'll do like a prompt and a timer and then you write as fast as you can by hand and with no regard for picking the right word. Um, and it essentially cuts through the critical voice, the imposter, like all of that stuff. You're basically saying a big F you to it. Like I'm gonna write anyway, here I go. Um, it's just, and it shortens the distance between your inner voice and the page. So I just like would shrink that space. And normally that space is filled with expectations, getting it perfect, you know, being likable, all of that fills the space between your voice in your head and the, what ends up on the page. If I were to synthesize both of those practices, I would use something that you said in the 
book, which is beautifully said, which is calmness is a resolve to execute the plan without attachment to the result. Mm-hmm. You're, you're nodding your head. What's the opposite of calmness for you? Oh, um, oh gosh, I want to say agitation. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like like the nervous system version of a million little fingernails on a chalkboard. What do you do when you get agitated? Well, I wish what I did something about it right away. Usually I'm just agitated. And then I try to find leaks, ways to leak that energy out, like biting my fingernails or doodling or something. <laughs> um, but a more proactive stance, which I cover in the book, is like mantras or, or a way for me to do that in running. I kind of ground myself in predetermined sayings, sentences, things I wanted to believe about myself or things I wanted to feel, which for me at the time, these aren't really relevant now, but it was the same sentences. It was, I belong among the best. I'm confident. I'm committed. I'm a winner and I'm relaxed, which were all things that did not feel true in those moments. So I would like be pulling myself back towards those things. And then I would feel more calm. The agitation would calm down. Yeah, I'm thinking about this though. Writing that letter at 3 a.m. Uh, comes from a place of agitation. Um, oh yeah, needing to take action. Writing this, I guess book, that's another thing. Yeah, you know, writing this book comes from a place of agitation, big time. So I'm thinking I'm a big fan of polarity and that there's value in in multiple things, and perhaps the calmness is what allows you to execute. Um, but the agitation is what gets you going and, and keeps you going. Um, and perhaps there's perhaps agitation is underrated. Um, that's a really good point. Like back to like magnetism in a person, maybe agitation can help you see like what, where you need to draw some attention or maybe where you need to take action. Um, but you can't take action necessarily like very well from a place of agitation. Maybe you can start writing the email, but you shouldn't send the agitated version. You should give that a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking about divorce and you're gonna, you're, you're going through this process and you just shared it with the world. Good for you. <laughs> like, I'm sure a lot of people were like, Whoa, like that's, that's impressive, interesting. I'm sure there's all kinds of adjectives that they would put on that. Uh, I'm thinking though, I just read this study. It's like, all right, so we know 50% of marriages end in divorce, but what doesn't get shared often, I think it's like 25% stay and are unhappy in their marriage. And so yeah. like the numbers are like 25 or 30% of marriages are actually successful, um, which is kind of a losing proposition. It's kind of like baseball. It's like, okay, you're in the hall of fame. If you get a hit three out of 10 times, it's like, all right, well, congrats. Um, and I'm wondering if more people need to listen to their agitation and and to go toward the things that they want to fight for. Um, and I would imagine this book does not get done without a lot of agitation. Um, oh, man, so much. It takes a toll. For sure. Any like advocate, anybody trying to like fight systems will tell you it it depletes you. Um, but you can't not do something like that state is worse 
than the agitation that you're taking action on. Yeah. Also thinking about marriage, it just cracks me up. This idea of like, this was long before Jesse and I decided to um, separate romantically. It was like uh, this idea of like a successful marriage is just defined by not leaving. Like, I, I guess, like, imagine if we applied that to other things, like, is a successful career one in which you, you never change it? You just keep doing the same thing you did when you were 18 or 21 or whatever it was. And you just keep, no matter what, no matter how much you've changed or your interests or whatever, you stick with that job. <laughs> that's success. Um, and that's just not what Jesse and I subscribe to. We're very much like, yeah, we wanted to, the, we, we didn't go into marriage thinking like, we'll get divorced at some point but we also weren't like we won't like I used to joke with Jesse like well let's just try to make this commitment for like 20 years and then see reassess it wouldn't be it wouldn't be crazy I mean we do that with a lot of other aspects of our life and and to the point like yeah okay it failed but it doesn't mean you're a failure right like I think yeah. that that you could apply that to everything to your point you didn't stand at the altar being like oh gosh I hope 20 years from now we end this or whatever it was 15 years. <laughs> but, so like, I think like uh, I had Dan Pink on the podcast and he wrote a book about regret and it made me really think about, I was like, yeah, we all have regrets uh, or I think of Andy Duke's work around quit. Like quitting isn't bad. Like we, we all have regrets. We all have things we quit um, and we need to learn and, and grow from those things. And, you know, to that end, I, I always tell my wife, I'm like, look, if you're ever unhappy, I really hope you don't stay with me. I, I'm, I truly, truly mean that. And because I love her and I wouldn't want her to live a life that is not um, and happiness is opaque. But um, yeah. but you get the point, like I, if it's not working for her, I, I want to know. And um, like that. And and I think she feels the same way. We've had conversations about it. So yeah, um, I just like I wouldn't want someone to stay with me just because they promised they would one day, long ago. Like if, if I'd want to continue to be a match for a person, and people kind of can grow apart or grow in different paths. And I don't know. I just feel like to me, a successful marriage is one in which you were glad you got married and you enjoyed being married when you were married, and then you knew when it was time to to not be married anymore. Like to me, that's still a successful marriage. I don't, I've never been like, you have to die together in each other's arms for it to have been a success. I think that is one definition people can have. That's just never been mine. All right. So look, the book is heavy. This is, I don't want to, I don't think this conversation has necessarily been heavy, but it's been interesting. Um, I feel like I know you cause I read the book and this is coming from someone uh, we have a mutual friend, David Epstein, who told me about you and told me what you're doing. I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. He's like, yeah, check out her book, check out your book. Um, but I'm not in the running world. Uh, I, you yeah. know, I, I don't follow it. It's it's not my world. Um, and but I feel like I now have a better understanding of your world uh, and all of it. And yet I don't have any idea as I sit here and talk to you about <laughs> where you are going the next two years. I, yeah. I think I'm like, this thing could go in like any direction. I, I don't have <laughs> any clue. Where do you see yourself two years from now? That's such a good question. Well, I'm 41. So I'm also like well-timed for a midlife crisis. And I cut bangs the other day, like I'm cliche. Um, so, uh, and I'm leaning into that. I feel like 
people call it a midlife crisis. I call it a midlife opportunity of just every, every so often you, you take stock of how you've changed and what you want, what you like to do. And I've dedicated the last three decades of my life to elite female sport and then broadened that to a more holistic look at women's sport overall and sport for all genders overall. And I've spent a ton of emotional and intellectual energy on that, trying to understand that, trying to create something out of it that could change things. Um, and I don't, I don't, I know that I don't want to remain deeply in that space for the next 40 years. Um, but I anticipate for the next two years that I will be, I think a little bit like responding to the reactions to this book and trying to, I'm trying to stay really open to go, okay, the book is the best thing I could offer by myself. And now what might come from it? Where could there be change? Maybe it's in policy. Maybe it's in, um, I don't even know, but um, I want to see who's doing what out there and where I might be able to contribute my skills. I will host retreats because I love them and I will do some public speaking. And outside of that, though, I don't know. Well, if people want to find out where they can learn more about you, is the website the best place? Where do you want to direct them? You got social media followings. Let us know about Instagram. I know you're on Twitter. Um, the website's laurenfleshman.com. We'll put in the show notes. Uh, social media, where do you like people uh, following following your journey? Um, Fleshman Flyer on Instagram is a good way to get an occasional look into all the various aspects of my life and my work. And then laurenfleshman.com right now doesn't have a ton on it, but I will be expanding it to have more information on it. Um, but yeah, I think those are the main things and you can just Google me. I'm comfortable with my Google presence. So if they're, if you're curious, there's articles and stories and videos on YouTube and, you know, feel free dig down that rabbit hole if you want. <laughs> and the book is called good for a girl. I, had my brother and my sister-in-law in town uh, over the weekend and I was telling them about the book and I was like, yeah, it's called good for a girl. And I'm like, Ooh, great title. Great title. <laughs> uh, so you nailed it on, on the title. Uh, and I, I guess the subtitle is a woman running in a man's world and you can get the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, at least it looks like, um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. Lauren's there as well. Um, and look like I can't wait to talk to you in two years. I hope you continue moving. Uh, and I hope you continue, uh, being out in nature, uh, I run retreats too. I love being there. I hate planning them. They are a yeah. bitch to plan. Uh, <laughs> I've thought about like, do we want to expand our retreat offering? And I'm like, I probably need someone to actually do the damn thing. But being there, I love. Mm -hmm. So I'm with yeah. you on retreats. Uh, and Lauren, uh, if and when you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to connect with you in person. Um, and I just want to thank you for writing the book. Uh, it's powerful. And thank you for having the courage to share some of the dark sides of yourself and um, some of the not so sexy elements of running and of life. Um, and I just really appreciate yeah. you as a person. I appreciate that. I think, you know, like we got to show our our mistakes and our vulnerability in order to encourage other people to look at their own and um, you can't change anything unless you have a lot of people willing to do that. So I'll definitely look you up when I'm in DC and, um, good luck being a girl dad. <laughs> well, in so DC, bad. I will tell you about when I joined my cross country team high school year, because I thought I was going to be a star basketball player, even though it's five foot, nothing, 100, nothing. Uh, so I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'll do cross country and I'll, I'll, I'll run to stay in shape. And I used to run to the pizza place, get French fries and pizza during practice, cramp up on my back. It was, it was, I was... <laughs> I was the back of the pack. Uh, it lasted one <laughs> hip, year. 
So I'll, yeah, pizza doesn't pizza's not the best during running food, but um, but yeah. <laughs> thanks, Lauren, for coming on. All right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think sometimes, at least in my experience, I felt so bad about having anxiety. I thought like, oh, a real professional wouldn't have this kind of fear uh, because in my earlier running days, I didn't have it. So I kind of like judged people that had had a lot of fear and anxiety. So that once I had that myself, I was now projecting my judgment back onto myself. And then that made the anxiety just grow bigger. It's like if you try to tell yourself not to think something, don't think about this, don't think about this, like you just think about it more. It's not an effective strategy. So I think embracing the fact that what anxiety means is that you care. It's just an indicator like, oh, I care about this. Here's this feeling inside letting me know I care. And then now what do I need to do to make sure that anxiety doesn't take the wheel so I can still do the thing I really wanna do. And a big part of that was lowering the stakes. 